Hey, I want to begin today with a question that I know this will probably take more time than we have to think about, at least deeply. But for me, it's an important question, uh, one that has meaning in eternity. It's a question of witness. So here's the question. If I were to ask you to name for me the most significant witness to faith that you've ever made in your life, what would you name? Would you name something in your past? In other words, would you point to a witness or testimony that you've made back some time ago? Or would you point to something currently happening in your life right now? Or is it possible that your most significant witness is yet to come? I want to welcome you to God's Size Living today, and, and I'm going to tell you that we're going to talk about a topic I've been thinking hard about, at least from a personal perspective, for a long time. Uh, we're going to talk about our life's greatest witness. So, so I know this. There's a myriad of ways in which we bear testimony or witness to what we believe. Uh, I, I think a lot about this, the, the word witness itself. It's a broad word. Uh, sometimes we bear witness through what we write, sometimes what we speak, you know, sometimes our, our actions. In fact, this is kind of interesting. Sometimes our inaction is actually our witness. In other words, what we're not doing points to who we are. There's a lot of ways that we witness. Uh, but is it possible that maybe our greatest witness will be the way in which we face death? Uh, I'm challenged with this thought today. I really am. How will the way that you and I leave this world speak to the faith that lives inside of us? So let me tell you that one of the things that really got me thinking about this is a book uh, written in 1989. It's an old book. It's a, a book titled, strange title, but the title is They Went That Away. Uh, I think at the time I, I bought the book, I was actually just fascinated with the name of its author, uh, namely Malcolm Forbes. Some of you know that name, Forbes. Uh, B.C. Forbes, uh, Malcolm's dad, was actually the founder of Forbes magazine, magazine that kind of speaks to, to the business world today. Um, and if you know anything about him, you know that Malcolm's story is an extravagant one, extravagant. He just lived extravagantly. Uh, he was a collector of Fabergé eggs. Uh, he collected hot air balloons, Harley Davidson motorcycles. In fact, he... Um, from what, from what I'm told, he actually gave Harley-Davidson motorcycles away as Christmas presents, like sign me up, put me on your Christmas list, please. His homes were extravagant, uh, including Palais Mandoub in Tangier, Morocco. He was colorful. I mean, he just was. But what a lot of people don't know is that just one year before his own death, uh, Malcolm Forbes commissioned a study that, that became this book titled They Went That Away. If you've never read it, I'll tell you it's one of those books you, you cannot put it down. Uh, as the title infers, it's actually a study of the way that many of the rich and the famous who've come before us died. So think about this with me. Do you remember how Alexander the Great died? Uh, he's remembered perhaps as the greatest military strategist of all time, but he did not die in a military excursion. You know what killed him, if you remember this? Alcohol. In fact, many historians would say it this way, that Alexander the Great literally drank himself to death. In other words, at the end of his life, his testimony was really not a good one. So how about, how about General George Patton 
America's great general. I mean, he commanded troops of tanks. His name was feared in the battlefield. So uh, what battle did he die in? And of course, you, you probably know the answer is none because he was killed under what most people consider to be pretty highly suspicious circumstances uh, as a result of, of injuries sustained in an automobile accident. In fact, a lot of historians believe that it was not an accident, but rather part of an assassination attempt. Kind of an interesting witness at the end of his life. So how about Wild Bill Hickok? Kind of a fun name. Uh, actually the fastest gun in the West. You know what? He didn't die of a gun battle. He was shot in the back. Uh, Forbes in his book, he investigates deaths like Sir Walter Raleigh's, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all, all these big names. But here, here's the interesting thing. It's surprising to me. As large as most of these people were in life, their deaths didn't speak well of their life. Uh, their concluding testimonies in most instances were a complete disaster. Uh, and in fact, I'm not sure that Malcolm's uh, death was exempt from this same fate. Uh, it's, it's interesting to, to me that he died actually of a heart attack at the age of 70, just one year again after he commissioned this book about death. And after throwing himself a $2.5 million birthday party where he gave away uh, engraved Rolex watches. And to me, it's, it's ironic, it's paradoxical that here's a man so interested in the ungainly ways in which the rich and famous died. And then he leaves, he leaves this world in such a strange way. So think about this. Did his end or his death impact his witness? I think it did. So here, let me enter the book of Daniel. Last week, we looked at the last part of chapter four in Daniel's narrative. And I want you to remember this with me. We've got Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the most powerful city, uh, kingdom on earth. And what's happened to him, he's been humbled by God. Uh, you cannot be more humbled than to be placed into a field and caused. Think about this. God caused this. Caused Nebuchadnezzar to eat grass and moo like a cow. I mean, imagine this for a moment. Our... our United States President Joe Biden, sunglasses intact on all fours in a field full of cows, chewing on hay and mooing. So, so you tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that would make every news and social media source that exists on planet Earth. And I can't say that I know what the headlines might read, but maybe something like this. Move over, Joe. As in, we need a new president. Okay, that was, that was bad. That was, that was not good. But it's true, isn't it? So remember again with me what happens. God is causing and using this episode in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Why? Because God sees his heart. Pride is killing Nebuchadnezzar. Pride's in the way of Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging, you know what, God, I need you. And I, again, I don't want you to ever lose sight of this, that while, while most people hated Nebuchadnezzar, they did. He was a tyrant. God loved him. So the narrative says it this way. For seven periods of time, God left Nebuchadnezzar in that field. What does that mean? 
Uh, did God leave him in that field for seven hours, seven days, seven weeks, seven months? Here, here's what I want us to see. Throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, the number seven is representative not of something, but of someone, specifically Jesus Christ. When the narrative says God left him, Nebuchadnezzar, in the field in cow-like state for seven periods of time, we actually technically don't know how many days, weeks, months, or even years that might have been. That's not the point. Here's what we know. The director behind the scenes in this period of time is none other than Jesus himself. That's number seven. And what is Jesus seeking to do? He loves Nebuchadnezzar. He's seeking to bring him to faith. He desires an authentic relationship with him. Here's the question. Does it happen? So last time we spent a little time on this. If you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. But the gist of it is this. No, Nebuchadnezzar does not come to faith. He gains information uh, from a head versus a heart perspective. He's able to acknowledge some things about Daniel's God, but no, he doesn't come to faith. You know what? That breaks God's heart. It's spiritually heavy for Daniel, but no. So what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? All right, I want you to listen to the beginning of chapter 5. I promised you last week we get into chapter 5. We are, but just the beginning of it. Here's the beginning of chapter 5. It reads as follows. King Belshazzar. Did you get that? No, no more Nebuchadnezzar. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Hmm. All right. So at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's alive. And he's actually, despite the time he spent in that cow field, he's actually restored to his throne. He's expounding on his experience to both his own people and to the states that surrounded Babylon. He wants them to know, hey, I'm back. I'm on the throne again. And what happened to me, I, I don't understand it, but it, it, it was the work of this God of Daniel's, who, by the way, no one should mess with. But here, here's what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. He's like Malcolm Forbes. He's the most powerful, rich man in the world, and he's getting ready to die, and he doesn't even know it. So how does chapter 5 begin? With these simple words, King Belshazzar made a great fist. Uh, excuse me? Who? Belshazzar? Who's that? So here's what I want you to know. We're going to come back around this next week and get more detail. But but here's what I want you to know. Between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five of Daniel, 23 years pass. 23 years pass. And guess who no one is talking about anymore? King Mu, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the question that raises inside of me. At his death, what was said of him, of Nebuchadnezzar? What did his life stand for? How did it serve the people of Babylon? Let me say it differently. Which has a greater impact, the testimony that we make with our lives or the one that we leave with our death? Is it possible that the greatest testimony you'll make with your life comes at the end? When either the proclamation is made that through the gift of faith, the faith God has placed within you, death itself has been overcome, a proclamation of victory. Or 
Will someone stand over the box you're in and speak fuzzy words that have very little to do with anything more than trying to make people feel good? You know what? While they're thinking, hey, someday I'm going to be in one of those boxes. And they've got a question, how do you overcome death? This is kind of interesting to me that in the year 1989, the same year Forbes wrote his book, they went that away. A man named Stephen Covey wrote a book that not only has become a bestseller, but is to this day considered one of the all-time most important books for leaders to read. The book's titled, maybe you've heard of it, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And here's what I've always found to be significant. Do you know where Covey's book begins? Think about this with me. This is a book businesses, social, political entities use to train leaders. So where does the book begin? Here's the answer. With the reader standing over a casket. And guess who's in the casket? You are. You know what you're doing? You're listening to what all the people who are looking down into that box are saying about you. Now, here's the question Covey asks. What would you like to hear as you listen to people talking about you? Do you want to hear platitudes, culturally nice words? Are the people standing over you saying things like, oh, doesn't he, doesn't she look so peaceful? They were such a good person. Or or do you want to hear people talk about what your life actually stood for? Do you want to hear people talk about how you faced death, looked it in the eye, pronounced it defeated? Do you want to be known for your faith, for what God has been doing in your life? Here's the way Covey says it. I love this quote. Just listen to it. He says, are you right now who you want to be, what you dreamed you'd be, doing what you always wanted to do? Be honest. Sometimes people find themselves achieving victories that are empty. Successes that have come at the expense of things that were far more valuable to them. If our ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step you take gets you to the wrong place faster. It's a great quote. If your ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step you take gets you to the wrong place more quickly. He says, begin with the end in mind. So here's a simple observation. Nebuchadnezzar I I believe, began with the wrong end in mind. His views about life were spiritually short-sighted. He could see the end of his nose. I'm going to expand Babylon. I'm going to conquer new territories. I'm going to grow my kingdom. At the end, his testimony is what? It's empty. Chapter 5 comes, and no one is speaking his name. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. And what remains embarrassingly are stories not of the buildings he built, the walls that he constructed, the territories that he acquired, but of the days that he spent in a field mooing with cows. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. And worse yet, he separated from his maker, the one who loved him and sought him out. He is separated for eternity. Here's what I like to do. Um, I want to use this story, this last chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's life to raise up just a couple of significant questions. I don't believe that this part of the narrative is set before us so that we just look back and say, wow, poor Nebuchadnezzar. I don't, I don't think so. No, I believe this narrative intends to provide a platform for you and I to ask just a couple of questions. Not two of them. Here they are. Number one, 
Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. So, so the question is, what is your end? At the end of your days, what's your testimony? What do you want to be known for? Now, as you answer that question, I really want you to concentrate on one thing. Try to fill in this blank. At the end of my days, as people look down into my box, I want to be known for what? What's your testimony? Here's question two. Are you living today in a way that's reflective of that testimony? Are you on the right road? Is your ladder leaning up against the right wall? Are there critical changes that need to happen in your life right now? So I I don't know how you want to answer those questions, but I I do know this. As heavy as these questions are, and, and I think they're heavy, the more clarity that we have in our lives about who we are in Jesus and why we're here, about beginning with the end in mind, the clearer our testimony will be. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you for joining me. It means a lot to me to have you uh, join me. Uh, I hope you'll share uh, this podcast with others. If you'd like to share some thoughts with me about what God's doing in your life, uh, I invite you always to do so. Uh, you can email me. My, my email is lbiggs at peacegi.org. So until next week, I'm going to be praying for you, and I'm going to ask that you pray for me. Uh, as well. Uh, Let's pray that God gives us wisdom to deliberate the questions the Spirit has put in front of us today. Uh, Next week, we're going to dive into chapter five. Until then, have a God-sized week.